And it is a joy to be with you today. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, that's found on page 1030, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats. As always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider this text together. Let's pray. Our Lord, you've given us a beautiful day to gather and to worship you, and for that we give you our thanks. We also look forward to celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, a wonderful reminder of your Son's dying love for us. Lord, I pray that you would use our study of today's text to prepare our minds for that event, that you would use this text to give us a greater appreciation uh, for your Son, for who He is, for the work that He did on our behalf. Pray that you would give us understanding of today's text and that you would use it to draw us closer to yourself. Lord, I pray all of these things in your Son's name. Amen. So, Revelation chapter 5 continues a vision which began in chapter 4. And as that vision began, the Apostle John was transported into the very throne room of heaven. And there he saw the throne of God with his own eyes. And he said that throne was standing there in heaven, meaning that it was firmly fixed in heaven. Then John told us that he saw God himself seated on that throne. And he described God's appearance as being of jasper and carnelian. That means that God was was bright and shining and, and glistening and he looked like fire. In other words, more glorious than, than any of us can imagine. And then the apostle began to explain what he saw around God's throne. First, he saw an emerald rainbow around the throne. This spoke to the fact that he is the living and true God and that he is the source and support of all life in the universe. And then John said he saw coming forth from the throne thunder and lightning and also water and the Spirit. And this means that he saw God exercising judgments and salvation. And then looking more broadly around the throne, John says that he saw angels and saints, and they were all gathered there worshiping God on his throne. And they were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And they were shouting, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And now we move into chapter 5, verse 1, and John continues to tell us what he saw and heard. He writes, verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. So next thing John sees is a scroll in God's hand. Now this scroll contains God's plans for establishing his kingdom on the earth. 
And that would include his plans for judging the world in righteousness, for establishing uh, justice in his world. It's his plans for conquering the devil, for elevating his saints. All of it is written in that scroll. And we know this because of the content of succeeding chapters of this book. And friends, that scroll is in God's hands because God is the author of these plans. You see, God is the supreme sovereign who decrees all things, and that includes the course and the ending of world history. See, history is not aimless, as the secularist would have us believe. Neither is history cyclical, as, as is taught in Eastern religions, but rather history moves on a straight course like an arrow. It has a definite beginning point, a forward trajectory, and it has a terminus. And God has declared it all, the end from the beginning. In fact, God says in the book of Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and I say that my purpose shall stand and I shall do all that I please. And that scroll represents God's good pleasure for the end of human history. And as we look at this first verse, we find two more important details about God's future plans. First, we notice that his plans are comprehensive. They're comprehensive. Notice how the scroll contains writing both within and on the back. Now, ordinarily, a scroll would only be written on one side. But God's plans for the culmination of history are so detailed, he required both sides of the scroll. You see, God has ordained every moment, every detail, every little aspect of human history, and it is all there on his scroll. We also see that God's plan is concealed. It's concealed. You'll notice the scroll is sealed with seven seals, the number seven, signifying that it is perfectly or completely locked up. But now to verse 2. It says, Then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? to open the scroll, and to break its seals. Now, this is very interesting because it means that while God is the author of these plans for the future, yet God has also delegated the responsibility of executing his plans to another. But that person must be capable of carrying out what the scroll decrees. And so God has sent out this angel. This angel is is offering the invitation, who is worthy to approach the throne of God, to take hold of the scroll, to open it up, to execute God's plans for his kingdom? Who can do it? Verse 3 says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So the invitation has gone out, but nobody steps forward. And creation was right to hold back because you see, friends, who would, who would dare to say that they are capable of doing what this scroll decrees? Who in God's creation is prepared to say that they are able to execute God's justice properly in this universe? 
who's prepared to say they can establish a kingdom of justice, who can say they have the, the strength to conquer the devil and his hosts. Who could do any of this? Nobody could. And so nobody steps forward. And then we come to verse 4. John says, So I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John is feeling hopeless. And, and I trust that you can, you can understand his feeling. First, there's all this anticipation. God has the plan for the future, and it's in his hands. It's right there, and the invitation's going out. Who can step forward and execute the plan? Excitement builds. But then when nobody comes forward, all hopes are dashed. It seems that the world is just going to carry on as it always had. In its broken state, sin will continue. The devil will continue his reign of terror, what can be done? There's nobody, nobody that can open this scroll. But then verse 5, a new ray of hope. John writes, And then one of the elders said to me, Remember, these elders are representatives of the saints gathered around God's throne. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So weep no more, John, because there is one. It's only one, but at least there is one in this universe who is capable of taking the scroll and breaking its seals. One who can carry out God's plans for his kingdom. And the elder gives this one two titles. First, he calls him the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Now, this title comes directly from the first book of the Bible. Book of Genesis, chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. And that passage offers a prophecy about one who would come who would appear on the world scene, and he would have the ferocity and the strength of a lion. And the prophecy says he would come, he would crush all of God's enemies, and then he would receive all the homage of the nations. The elder says to John, that lion has come. He has conquered. He can open the scroll. Then he gives a second title. He calls him the root of David, or perhaps better, the shoot or the branch of David. And this is from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, which offers a further prophecy about this lion of Judah. This prophecy adds the detail that he would come specifically from King David's royal line. And so here in verse 5, the elder says to John, there is no reason to feel hopeless. There is one being in the universe who can take the scroll. He is qualified and he is capable of doing what God requires. And that being, he is here, he is among us, he has conquered, he will carry out God's plans. But friends, now we come to verse 6. Here our champion finally steps forward, but now listen to, this, to the description of him. John writes, And between the throne 
four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. A lamb standing. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. What an unexpected twist in the story. So verse 5, the elder says, there's one who can take the scroll. He is a lion. He is the branch of King David. And now verse 6, this lion comes forward. But he's actually a lamb, a lamb who looks like he has been slain. Friends, the surprises just continue. I mean, the lamb is standing, and yet he was slain. So this lamb, he has a scar showing the mark of a mortal wound, and yet he's alive and well. And then second part of verse 6, this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, in the scriptures, a horn represents strength. This lamb has seven horns representing perfect or complete strength. But then he also has seven eyes, and John explains the seven eyes represent the Holy Spirit of God. So he is full of the Holy Spirit, and he is sending his spirit out to do God's work in the world. So this This being, he is a lion, but a lamb. He was slain, and yet he stands. He is strong, yet he is also gracious and merciful. And then verse 7, he is courageous, but also submissive. Here we see him stepping up to God's throne. Now, who but the bravest among us could do that? Either that or the most foolhardy. But he steps right up to the throne of God, stretches out his hand, snatches the scroll out of God's hand with the intention of breaking the seals. This is a courageous lamb. But friends, he's not taking the scroll for the purpose of burning it. He's taking it for the purpose of carrying out God's decrees. He's courageous, but he is submissive to God. Truly, friends, There is no one like this being. Who else is a lion and a lamb? One slain, but still standing. One one strong, but merciful. One courageous, but submissive. There is no one else like this being. Friends, by now I trust you know who this one is. Of course, John is talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, our Lord Jesus is a lion. He is a lion. The scriptures teach that he is none other than the very Son of God and the agent through which God created and presently sustains this universe. And as such, God's Son, our Lord Jesus, possesses all of the attributes of deity. Everything that God is, Christ is. He is fully God. He is a lion. But more than that, He is the Lion of Judah. And He is the branch of David. And these terms speak to His humanity. See, the Scriptures also teach that when the fullness of time had come, God sent 
His Son, our Lord Jesus, into the world, gave Him a human nature so that now, through the miracle of the Incarnation, we had one person with two natures, fully God, fully man, both in the one Christ. He was implanted into the womb of the Virgin Mary, born on Christmas Day, placed into a manger, lived more than 30 years among us as the theanthropic person, God and man. The scriptures also establish our Lord's connection to King David. He's from David's direct line as it concerns his humanity. Therefore, he is fully entitled to lead the coming kingdom of God. Friends, he's also more than a lion. He is also our sacrificial lamb. Friends, if you ever wondered why the world is such a messed up place, why it is overflowing with violence and, and conflict and greed and envy and in every terrible thing. Well, the scriptures teach that our world is broken today because our first parents, Adam and Eve, made a choice. They chose to step out from under God's authority, to reject God's law, and to go their own way. And that decision was the very definition of sin. And from that point on, they and all their posterity, which is to say all humans, save Christ, that have ever been born, they have all borne both the guilt of sin and also carried a sin nature. And friends, our world is broken because our world is infected with this disease of sin. It explains our misery, sorrow, death, all of it. Man's inhumanity to man. It's why we're constantly doing things we wish we would stop doing. And why we don't do the things we wish we would. It's the sin nature that infects us all. Friends, the consequences of sin are devastating. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, meaning our sin puts us on a trajectory toward separation from God and eternity in hell itself. Friends, God is a just God, and He would be just in allowing the world to continue on in this state, allowing us all to suffer the consequences of our own sin. But God is also a God of love. The scriptures tell us that in his love, God provided a way for the curse to be reversed, for sinful human beings to be reconciled to himself. And that was through the gift of his son. That's why God sent his son into the world. And on Christmas Day, we will celebrate the fact that God's Son took on a human nature, came into the world, and that He lived a life of perfect righteousness in our place, living the holiness that we are incapable of living. And then, friends, at the cross, our Lord Jesus voluntarily took upon Himself the full consequences of our sinfulness. He bore on his shoulders the wages of sin. He experienced death and hell for our sakes. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sakes God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so He endured hell that we might experience heaven. Our Lord became the conquering lion by offering Himself as the sacrificial lamb. His flesh for our flesh. His life for ours. A perfect substitute for sinners. But friends, as our text declares today, He is the sacrificial lamb, but now He stands. And that's because the grave could not hold our Lord Jesus. On the third day after His death, He rose from the grave, proving His victory over sin and death and hell, proving the truthfulness of all of His claims. And now He sits exalted in heaven at the right hand of God, and He extends to all of us peace with God, forgiveness of sins on the condition that we repent and trust in Him. And so, my friends, our Lord Jesus is strong, but also merciful. He created the world. He sustains it. He was strong enough to endure the cross for our sakes. And yet he has mercy so that he extends the offer of forgiveness to us. Friends, he's a lion and a lamb. He is strong and he is merciful. He died, but now he lives. And friends, for this tremendous work, God the Father has highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every other name, and given him the job of executing the decrees written on that scroll. It is through Christ that God will reverse all the effects of sin's curse on this world. It is through Christ that he will establish his kingdom on the, world, on the earth, that he will judge all unrighteousness, that he will put it away once and for all. It is through Christ that he will conquer the devil and his hosts, and that he will glorify us and give us a place of rule and reign alongside of him. It is all through Christ. And so truly, Christ is the only being capable of taking that scroll. Now friends, about 300 years ago, Jonathan Edwards wrote that Christ's glory consists of this, quote, the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Now, that's a beautiful way of saying that what makes Christ so glorious is his way of bringing together attributes that we would normally think of as contradictory. And so in Christ, we see a lion and a lamb, one slain, but who also stands, one strong but gracious, one courageous but submissive, one who died but who lives. And friends, he alone is the world's only true hope. So my friend, where do your hopes lie this morning? Where do your hopes lie? Have you put your hope in politics? You know, many have. Many believe that if they could just get their preferred candidate or their preferred party in power, Give them all the levers of power that that would make the world a better place. Friends, politics have been around a long time and we're still as miserable as we've ever been. Maybe your hope isn't in politics. Maybe you've put your hope in the promises of education. That if everyone could just be 
educated enough that somehow it would help us to overcome our our greed and our jealousies and our our vices and we would all live together in harmony. You know, this was the promise of of, um, the government-sponsored universal educational program. It's what uh, generated the mandate that all go to school up to a certain age, that if we can just get everyone well-educated enough, all of our vices will be figured out. We'll learn to get along. Well, friends, we have the most well-educated society in the history of the world, at least in terms of the number of years that each of us has gone to school, and yet our vices remain. Well, maybe your hope isn't in education, then maybe it's in economics, that if we could just generate enough wealth for everybody, or perhaps if we could just redistribute the wealth so that nobody has any physical needs, then there'd be no reason to lie or cheat or steal or kill. Wealth is the answer. Well, friends, we live in the wealthiest society in the history of the world. Has it solved any of our problems? Maybe economics isn't where your hope lies. Maybe it's in the promise of technological breakthrough. Maybe you are hoping that if we just wait a little longer, science will will have a breakthrough that will solve all of our problems. Through technology, we're going to heal the planet. We'll change the climate itself. Through, Through technology, we're going to bring ourselves together and have harmony. You know, that was the hope of the social media giants in the early days. Just read their speeches They said, through social media, we're going to bring the whole world together. People from different parts of the world, different perspectives, they'll learn to talk to each other, and there's going to be love and harmony. Friends, we've seen the bitter fruits of social media today. Most say it's done more harm than good, especially to our teenagers. See, friends, there is nothing that you can put your hope in save the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is going to let you down because only Christ deals with our true problem, which is the problem of a sinful disposition, the problem of guilt for actual sins committed. Only Christ has done what is necessary to solve that problem. Only Christ offers a new heart. Only he offers a new society and principles of righteousness, and he alone has the wisdom and the might and the righteousness to bring such a new order about. So, my friend, don't put your hope in anything except Christ, the one who lived, died, and rose again, the one who conquered like a lion by offering himself as a sacrificial lamb. He's the only champion who will not let you down. He's the only one who deserves our worship as well. And that's what we find in the remainder of this chapter. Now, very quickly, let's work our way through it. Beginning in verse 8, it says, And when he, the Lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You see, he is the answer to the godly's prayers. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. 
and they shall reign on the earth. They are worshiping him for being the sacrificial lamb and the conquering lion. He has redeemed the people, and he is ruling and reigning with them. Or at least he will in that coming kingdom. And then verses 11 and following, John writes, And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, the text reads. And they were all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13, now we're looking even farther into the future. And it says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. In other words, every living being who has ever existed in the universe, saved and unsaved, heaven-bound and hell-bound, they are all now joining in a chorus and saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the, el- and the elders fell down. And worshiped. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 2 At the name of Jesus, every knee shall one day bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Friends, what this passage shows us is that Christ is everything we need. We need a champion. Well, Christ is a champion. We also need mercy. Christ offers mercy. We have a longing for greatness. Well, through Christ, we find greatness as we take hold of our inheritance in His kingdom. We also need someone to help us in our weariness, and through Christ, we find that help, for He's the one who declared, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, I conclude with some words from a book entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. It reads, we mortals are not simple. We are pitiful, yet we have mighty passions. We are weak, yet we dream of doing wonders. We are transient, but eternity is written on our hearts. The glory of Christ shines all the brighter because the conjunction of His diverse excellencies corresponds perfectly to our complexity. Once, this lamb-like lion was oppressed and afflicted. He was led to the slaughter like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. But at the last day, it will not be so. The lamb-like lion will become the lion-like lamb. And with imperial aplomb, he will take his stand on the shore of the lake of fire where his enemies will be destroyed forever and ever. And so we all say, with the hosts of heaven, worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text, and I pray that you would help us to see the worthiness of your Son. He is worthy of our trust He is worthy of our repentance and our faith. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. He is worthy to rule over 
your kingdom. He is worthy of all of this and more. Lord, help us to see that today and prepare our hearts now as we remember his dying love for us, as we anticipate his return through the celebration of his supper. We pray these things in his name. Amen. For the distribution of the bread and the cup, we're going to sing a hymn, so I invite you to stand with me. And we'll sing hymn number 286, Once in Royal David City, verses 1, 2, and 4. Time has come for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you're not familiar with this supper, it is a rite um, initiated by Christ on the very night in which he was betrayed. And in this supper, we take a little bit of bread and a little bit of grape juice. And in the partaking of these elements, we remember his dying love. We express our anticipation for his return. And then we also delight in our spiritual union with Christ and with one another. Friend, if you are here today and you are among the disciples of Christ, meaning that you have repented of sin, you have trusted in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, if you are living in obedience to his word, we invite you to partake of these elements today. On the other hand, if you're here today and you've not yet received Christ, Um, perhaps you're still considering his claims, then we would ask you to simply allow the plates to pass and you can observe while the others partake. Perhaps you would even consider receiving Christ through a prayer of faith today while the others are receiving him through the elements. Well, turning to the supper now. The scriptures tell us that on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, He first took the bread, and then he gave thanks. I'm going to ask Andrew if he would please stand, uh, take the microphone, and offer thanks for the bread before us today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. Uh, Thank you for giving us this day of communion and giving us the ability to just worship you and uh, consider the sacrifice that your son gave for us. Uh, Lord, we love you, we thank you, we ask these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. And Jesus broke the bread and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then the scriptures tell us that in the same way also, our Lord took the cup and gave thanks. So this time I'll ask Everett if you would please take the microphone and thank the Lord for the cup before us today. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to come here and gather in your house and worship you. As we partake in these elements, I just pray that you give us mindfulness and the ability to come closer to you and remember your sacrifice as we partake in these elements. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And Jesus lifted the cup 
and said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then finally Jesus said, Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of God. So all of God's people say, Amen, and come Lord Jesus. Matt, conclude our time with a hymn.